This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by Running Warehouse. The holidays are near, which means it's time for deals. Whether you're shopping for your favorite runner or gearing up for a big 2024, Running Warehouse has your back with sales from all your favorite brands. Check out the especially big deals from Saucony for all your road running needs. The Ride, Guide, and Tippets are go-to trainers for our team and models you'll want to check out for your next workout. For off-road runners, Solomon Shoes have become a team favorite for hitting the trails. The Solomon Ultra Glide and Sense Ride are two phenomenal trailblazers that we've gone back to time and time again. Visit the link in our description or head over to runningwarehouse.com to start shopping today. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. We have a great episode lined up for today. We have Dr. David Salas, Dr. Matthew Klein, and myself. I'm Nathan Brown. I'll be hosting today. But it's our monthly mailbag, which should be a lot of fun. At the same time, uh, I cannot make any promises about what's going to happen tonight because we've, we have Matt, who is just struggle busing with a pretty severe virus of some kind, just been hacking up the lung. We also have David, who had a gnarly workout today and kind of seems like he's in another world. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm just trying to keep the ship afloat, you know, so we'll just, we'll see what happens, but we're going to get there and it should be fun because we got our mailbag and we, we always love when we get to do these episodes. Yeah. This will probably uh, be a wild episode for sure. And for those on uh, watching, I'm really sorry. My, it is a running podcast, but my nose is running and apologies Jesus for those Christ. on YouTube. We just <laughs> saw like a droplet were come out. So I'm sorry. Crying. Terrible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Terrible joke. Although the only thing Not that is going to the only Sorry. thing that is going to get me through tonight is my Capri Sun that I've got yeah. here, which is just delicious by the way. Yeah, I'd really Dude, like I want a Capri like Sun warm right apple now. cider now. This is so good. It's delicious. This one's a uh, Pacific Cooler. Oh, like a classic. That's a classic. This is a classic. Yeah, that's like an OG. That's like pure high fructose corn syrup. Oh, it's delicious. Beautiful. It goes it. down well. All right. So- <laughs> That's racing fuel right there. Just put that in a little soft really flask is. and pull that. That's perfect. Dude, heck yeah. 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 What was your workout today, David, again? What I did you do? I don't even know, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, carnage. That's what it was. Uh, it was Uh-oh. 20. Well, supposed to be 21 miles. The math was kind of wrong. It ended up being 23. Um, it was like 90 minutes at five something pace and then another like like high fives and then like a 10 minute break and then another 20 minutes at like 520 something pace and that was after two hours at that point for that 20 minute portion there because it was like 20 minute warm-up 90 minute workout or tempo 10 20 and then was far enough away from the car where i had to add on to get back to the car so I don't know. I got got today. That's that was a rough one. I mean, like it got done, but I'm just like I was on my floor for the next couple hours. You know, if you haven't done it already after that, I feel like you should make a special dish and you should call it a carnage asada. And either it's just a really wait, (laughs) like so hear me out. okay? because David loves tacos, right? He's the taco connoisseur. So either you make like just one really big taco, which I guess is just a burrito. Like if you just get, oh, that's that's like sacrilege. I'm sorry. But like one that's really big offensive. taco or a huge like plate of carne asada tacos. And then this is your special recipe called a carnage asada. <laughs> is that dumb? Matt, no. Is that going to get cut out? Oh, no, it can't be no I don't Maybe think it'll get like cut out. Slow cook it while you're out on the carnage long run. And then it comes out and it's like... <laughs> 
all perfect and you just well, chop it that's... up and then throw it in and make all some right. tortillas real quick and then slide it on. Yeah. I mean, it could work. It could work. I'm not going to lie. The problem yeah. is I have to be functioning in order to do that. And I was not functioning okay. for about two hours. That's what I said. Yeah, after post, post That's why you gotta uh, get it slow yeah. cooking before right. so that it's ready later. I think that's it. All right, we've solved everything. Should we be done with the podcast for the night? Yeah, it is. We figured it out. Came up with no, the greatest topic. Just name, so, you know. As as always, our subjective of the day when we do our mailbag is to get your questions. So again, our uh, subjective for the day is if you have a question for us, put it down below or send us an email at docsrunning at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions. We do get a lot of them. And so we're sorry if we don't get to all your questions, but we do try to pull ones together that kind of make a cohesive conversation uh, within these. So within these episodes. So let's just jump in here. Uh, Our first one is from Bernard and he emailed us and he just wanted to ask a question. He said, I would like to know how the midsole hardness changes after 300 to 500 or 750 kilometers or 180 to 300 miles. Um, He wants to know this for his own shoes, of course, but also for his patients. He must be some kind of provider. Um, Is there a list where you can find the beginning hardness values of shoes, midsoles and how much they may change? Um, that's that's his question. So Matt, you clearly have thoughts. The the Matt thought finger is up. So yeah, let's hear what up. you got to say. I try I try to be nice. Try to raise my hand, even though it's not necessary. You guys make fun of me for it. Um, so there is not an exclusive list of each shoe's midsole material. That stuff is going to be proprietary to a lot of companies, and it is going to vary quite a bit depending on. Uh, manufacturing. There's even been some kind of initial testing done to find that even between different colorways and different runs of shoes, the midsole hardness can be different. So just for example, just because you get, I'm going to pick on Nike here because it's not offense to them, but let's say you get a Nike Pegasus, one ver- every single shoe isn't going to have the same midsole hardness. They will do their best to get that, but there's going to be small variations of consistency just based on factory things, based on the chemical properties at the moment. So there, that's my way of saying there is some variety in that. Uh, some companies do try to list some averages, so please correct me if I'm wrong. I think Hoka typically lists their midsole hardness or durometer um, Correct on the side. I can't remember those numbers. But uh, one of them most, like volume. They did for David, one of them. They did. Yeah, there's three that yeah. they usually post. Uh, yeah. So there isn't a set list because a lot of companies don't measure that. And to be honest with you, based on the fact that a lot of soles now have multiple midsoles in them, that's not a very effective way of looking at overall midsole hardness. Like. For example, having three layers of uh, like of foam in something like the Prime X isn't going to give you accurate description because there's two different foams, and that third middle one on the forefoot is clearly different. So that's my way of saying I don't think midsole hardness is the best measurement of this. Instead, what might be a better way to think about this is the overall foam type, and even there, there's going to be some variety. We know, at least for some research I did in my undergrad, that a lot of midsole foams, we don't know this with PBACs, a lot of EVA and TPU midsole foams tend to firm up after about 100 miles. And then after that, it's how well you can compensate and learn to shock absorb. The PBACs foams and some of the mixes, we don't really know. They're probably going to last a little longer, but all of them are going to start to harden up and lose some whatever their resiliency is or, comp- or their... their uh, their compliance, right? So resiliency is how much the foam compresses and bounces back. Compliance is how much the foam compresses with each footfall. 
as you continue to pound through that, those foams bounce back less and less and less and less each time. So they tend to firm up. So yeah, depending on the shoe, depending on the foam, that stuff is going to firm up by three, 500, you know, 750 kilometers. How much it's going to do that is going to be a little dependent on you, how hard you land. So there is, that's, that's another way of saying, to answer your question, yes, it's certain, the mids, all midsole foams are going to change after those many kilometers. There's no foam that we know of that will maintain it for that long. It's everything's going to compress and lose its resiliency. How much is going to do that for each person? Going to vary totally. Is there a list where everybody has the beginning midsole hardness values? No, and that's not going to be accurate because we have so many dual density like midsoles right now that you'd have to measure two different things. And I don't know if you'd average that or what. But what I would look at is, hey, the midsole foam type and see if you can create some generalizations. But trying to create this giant list I don't think that's the most accurate way of doing this. It would be nice if it was that simple, but I don't think I it think, is. I think something interesting too is to create a list, you would probably want the correct metrics. So right. anyone could get could measure durometer. You can buy like a little tool to do that. But yeah, in talking to the comp- cheap on Amazon. Yeah. And in talking yeah. to the material science uh, directors at different companies, it's it's honestly a useless measure. So if there yep. is a website that happens to give you that data, it's not useful. It's not helpful. What you would need is somebody who's able to use an impactor, like an yep. impact testing machine that can look at full compliance and resilience to get the hysteresis curve of the entire midsole and, and then be able to test that early and later and put all that data out. I know there are some companies that do that testing. I know we know a researcher who wants to do that, but yep. it's not something that exists at this moment. Um, and the the very what we talked about with a conversation with Saucony, I can't remember how long ago was it now, maybe two months ago, but it was it was this year. It was pretty recent. Yep. Um, but Andrea Paulson did a good job explaining kind of the difference in people's perceptions of softness because of how how you strike the ground and the, the mechanics in which you do so, the velocity in which you're hitting the ground, that changes how much deformation of the foam and how much rebound of the foam happens. So that's why David and I think that the Bondi X, I think it's super soft. He yep. thinks it's super firm. It's because of how we interact with that foam. And so specific measurements through an impactor machine also have limited utility because it doesn't tell you that much about the firmness or softness. There is something to say about uh, you know how soft or how much stack there is on a on a shoe and the impact on the body. We actually have a question about that later. Yep. But for the, for your question, I think it's I, I agree with Matt and just wanted to add that little tidbit about the what's the value of knowing durometer in particular, but getting measurements of compliance and resilience still may also have limited utility. David, what do you got? Yeah, I will say too, hardness from a material science standpoint does have definition. And so there is something called a shore scale where they take a numeric value and give something a quote unquote value of hardness. And that does apply to foams as well. And so when you look at some of the footwear science research out there, looking at walking or running shoes, there are some values out there. However, looking at it quantitatively, does the actual hardness of the material, now that's different than like, let's just say the density of something. Like, is it heavy? Is it light? Is it PBAX? Is it compliant? Is it not compliant? Like the literal material property of how hard this thing is, I don't know if that data is out there. And to be honest, there's not that many studies that even look at that in the first place. And like I said with you guys, like, I don't know, 
I agree with you guys. Like, I don't know if it's really worth even looking at from a changing standpoint long term. Uh, but there's nothing that I have ever seen that I know of from a material science hardness standpoint, a change in foam over that long period of time. I imagine it probably happens, but it's hard to say because that's different than the compliancy. That's different than the resilience. Like that's like the literal nuts and bolts of like the chemical structure on the inside. Like how hard is this thing on how they measure it? Yeah. And there's different categories for that as well. Like they have like A, B, C, D, zero, zero, ranging up to these large numbers. So there is a material science field for hardness, quote unquote. I just don't know if it applies in that manner or if that information is as relevant. I think one of the one of the things he's getting at with his the, uh, with his question as well is he wants to know for his own shoes what's the change here maybe when do I need to change my shoes out and also for his patients and I think that's kind of the question is how do we know when to change our shoes out so um, we have two questions from people that relate to this so Kim Yesh shout out to Kim Yesh I have the privilege of working with her through coaching uh, she's awesome uh, this one uh, she was asking how long is too long to keep running in your running shoes and then tangentially related to that um, Bob Macklis asked. When I buy an older shoe model from eBay, is the midsole foam still fresh? So what sort of guidelines can we give people on this? I don't think Matt has anything to say. He's not waving his hand or anything. So. It's not like <laughs> I. the second question is not like I've messed with that for years and had severe consequences or anything. With the eBay, with the eBay question. Matt, so eBay what's, problem? No, I'd never put any no, of those never. in the same sentence. Matt, four hundred dollars eBay shoe. That was okay, StockX. That was StockX. <laughs> to was be that fair, that was StockX. It wasn't eBay. <laughs> to be fair, I remember this. That is my only only StockX person uh, uh, purchase. Uh, that's funny. Okay. Anyway, Matt. Actually, to be fair, you... actually the Vaporfly, the original uh, Vaporfly. No, the Vaporfly two. Was it? I don't remember. The real question it, I think is, it was is one of us going to drop 500 on the Evo ones on that second no. release? The answer is no. I've made this mistake twice now. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> that said, we got a ton of views on the website from those, those uh, well, not from the Audios Pro, but the... the Dang, I'd love to try that shoe, man. Uh, the Evo Pro. Come on, Adidas. Like, you said everybody else won. I'm just kidding. I'm being... All right. All right. So let's talk about let this question. Answer. Let's talk about the question. <laughs> okay, so the answer to this is yes, if you if the shoe has not been run in, the foams are still going to degrade. My story for this, and I think I've told this on this podcast before, is I remember in when I was working in running stores that I was looking at one of the old streak flies and it was on the wall. It was like 15 years old at this point. This is long after those had been out when I was working in running stores. And it was one of the like really cool colorways. And I was like, can I go run in that? So I grabbed it off the wall and I ran in it and it basically the sole fell apart like like a quarter of a mile into the run. It felt it was like super stiff and super hard. And I was like, why did people like these? So when I came back, it was a really great lesson to me that I should have learned but have not because I repeated this two or three more times uh, on my own that foams will break down. It doesn't matter if it's PBACs. It doesn't matter if it's EVA, TPU. Different ones will have different longevity. But yes, shoes will change over time just sitting there. Some of these changes will accelerate if they're sitting in an area that's especially cold or especially hot. There can be temperature damage that also happens to the shoes as well that will change the midsole properties and the upper and all the other stuff. So 
the midsole foam is not going to be fresh. If it's, you know, one or so, one or two years old, you might be able to get away with that. But beyond that, those foams are going to start changing. And we really don't know how long some like the PBAX foams last. So it can be a great deal to get stuff that's a year or two old. But once you start going beyond that, the foams, the structure, all this kind of stuff is going to be changing because it's starting to age. Once that thing finishes on the processes line, once those foams have expanded and the chemical process is finished, there's a natural degradation that's already starting to happen, just like everything in this world. So my warning to you is that, yes, one or two years might be okay. As soon as you start getting beyond that time, that's where you're kind of starting to run into murky waters and you need to be a little bit careful. I've done this with like the New Balance 905, for example, which was a favorite shoe of mine when I was just starting out. I got a pair like one or two years ago. That shoe is like 10, 15 years old. It felt terrible. The midsole was so hard and so uncomfortable because it had broken down and and the midsole just stiffened and compressed over time. So there was no foam compliance or resiliency anymore because it's already compressed. So to answer that question, just be careful and know it's not going to be fresh when you buy older stuff on eBay. Yeah. I I think this is an interesting question too. And I think I have a pretty non-satisfying response to how long can I keep running in my running shoes. And I, I just think it's it's ultimately one of those things that's really individual to your experience in the shoe and to your running goals and experiences and what, are, what you're using the shoes for. Are these shoes that you are running only in and then they just sit in your closet until you run again? Or are you running in them and you're walking in them all day? That will change you know, how long these things will last. If you're going to walk in it all day and you're going to be running in it, you can expect the shelf life of them to potentially be a little bit shorter. As Matt kind of referenced, there's the changes in the foam properties happen over the first even hundred miles. And so if your body is able to tolerate the changes that happen in the footwear, keep, keep going. I know people who run it for shoes over a thousand, 1,500 miles and they just pound miles on shoes and they don't have any issues with it. I mean, for goodness sakes, people run in sandals for hundred mile races, right? So it's like, if your body can tolerate the changes in the foam, great. But that does mean that the foam isn't going to give you the same uh, experience, both uh, qualitatively, but also if it's a performance shoe, it's not going to give you the kickback that it did early on. How long it takes for that foam to degrade to a point where it's not giving you like running economy changes, we don't really know individually, but we, we know it can be pretty quick for some of these shoes. Um, but again, my, my response is a little bit non-satisfying because it, I think that it's going to take you learning how a shoe experience changes over time. How long do you take to wear out a midsole um, versus how long does it take your friend? So I, I think that like I can shoes last a long time for me. Um, I never really had issues for, you know, I would have a shoe for like six months to a year. Um, I don't wear wear through my outsole like some people I know, but I also don't beat up the midsole and I feel like I can just keep going. Whereas I think some of us are going to be a lot, (laughs) some are going to be a lot shorter. So (laughs) So you also supplements having like systemic reactions to your words. <laughs> so Nathan, I, I wouldn't call your answer unsatisfactory. I would say it is also evidence based because we know that again, shoes tend to break down in the midsoles, and the thing tends to break down after about a hundred miles on average. And after that, it's really how long you can compensate. So someone like me, I will rip through a shoe, and like I'm lucky if I get 150, 200 miles out of them. Uh, although there are some that are more durable than others. 
Okay. Um, also, there's the fact that if you wear them a lot and the foam never has time to recover, there is evidence that that actually wears them out faster. That's why having a rotation of shoes can be helpful because if you run in a shoe and then you give it a break, the foam actually has more time to recover, believe it or not, as opposed to continually compressing it and losing that resiliency and compliance. That's a real thing. So the answer is it depends. I know you don't like that, but it's very individual to the person and how much you're using it. That's why it's really suggested not to wear your running shoes for walking in all day use because they will wear out faster. That is a thing. So it, it it is an individual thing and it is very important that you learn and you go through experience kind of check stuff going like how long do shoes usually last? If you're in a shoe and you haven't done anything different, all of a sudden things start to ache and like you're like, oh, this doesn't feel good. That's probably an indication the shoe's broken down beyond your capacity to compensate. But if it feels fine, you're like, everything's good. I haven't changed anything. It's great. Yeah, you might be able to hold out a little longer. My my sister is a is a fun case study. So she she'll message me. Um, it's basically like, I don't know, I should keep tabs on how long this message comes. And she's like, all right, Nate, I'm starting to get that weird feeling in my knee. What shoes should I get? Then she'll get new shoes and that niggle in her knee will go away every yep. single time. And it's always the same one. It's always just that exact same feeling. Yep. And she gets a different shoe. And yep. and I think that's just your body telling you that the shoe yep. has changed to the point where your body's not compensated anymore. Um and that's not the case for everybody, but for her, it works out that way. It's great that she's got a little like stimulus and cue that she knows, all right, it's time. And some people will learn that if you pay attention enough, you you might be able to figure that out, which is why you'll kind of start to notice, yeah, there's kind of a consistent number of miles I tend to get out of shoes. And before you get there, if you're going to stick with one pair, it might be good to go, hey, you know, like 50 miles before I get to that, it might be good to get another pair and start kind of like oscillating that back in and ease into my new shoe and just give your body some time to like ease out of it and into something new. Yep. David, do you have anything to add on this one? No, I think the only thing that, um, thought stimulus here that I, uh, might try <laughs> is, <laughs> so my alpha flies behind me are what they're, they're about two and a half years old probably. And I've only really ever used them for, special ish efforts. So they, I mean, they maybe have 150 to 200 miles on them, which I mean, over the course of two years, that's nothing, you know? So I am now thinking of taking them for a very hard long run next weekend, just to see what the experience looks like. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be interesting. But then if I get injured out of that too, that also doesn't help things. Awkward. No, it doesn't. Because you got three weeks till CIM? Give or take, yeah. I mean, what is it? We got, so... Going to a friend's wedding this week, then Thanksgiving, then CIM. Three weeks. So you know what this means is we got to get this episode as quick out, quickly as possible and get Nike to send you the, the Alpha Fly 3. <laughs> hey, if they send me the Alpha Fly 3, that's kind of what happened with the Endorphin Elite, right? Like I got the Endorphin yeah. Elite right before Ventura and I was like, oh, I actually really like this shoe. It. And then I ended up racing in it. So who knows? Yep. I mean, if I had, at least if I had a couple weeks you know, to play around with it. I'm sure it could happen. All right, let's move forward to our next question. Um, this is from Michael Karaku. They ask, uh, what are the best ways to prevent overuse injuries if you're a marathon training and on your feet all day? So I think I think one of the things uh, that that we our bodies do over time is they adapt to the stresses that we put on them. That's just kind of reality. Um, there are, you know, with running, we know that, you know, certain body structures don't adapt after a certain amount of time. And that's where you get some problems and some breakdown, but 
That said, if you've had a job where you're on your feet all day and your body is used to that stress, it's basically overall load management, not so much like your total volume matters, but like, you know, if your body has that baseline of the work that you're doing, it should be a pretty standard progression on top of that. Unless your job has a lot of variation, that could actually change what you might want to do with some, if I was coaching somebody in that scenario, if they have a really hard work project where they're lifting a lot more than they typically do, that might be a week where you drop you know, some of your hard workouts or your mileage or something like that. Uh, but if it's just being on your feet and walking around and standing, I think that it's, you're getting a lot of stimulus for muscular endurance and postural control of those muscles. What I would say is probably what you want is a good baseline of heavy strengthening and loading so that your tissues get a varied type of, of, um, stimulus versus just that continual low load that's always going day after day after day. Getting yourself that heavy lifting will be helpful for your tendons. It'll be helpful for your bones, getting a little bit of plyometric work. I think that would probably be my, you know, that'd be great to add in um, early before your marathon training session. And then during the season of your training, that's where you would back some of that stuff off. But I think that your progression, if your body's adapted to the work you're doing, it should be pretty typical. Um, do you have any contrary thoughts to that? Not necessarily, but what I hear is you're on your feet all day, your muscles are working all day, you're also doing a lot of running, you're probably really tired. I think eating a lot and sleeping a lot goes a very, very long way in yes. this conversation. And I don't think that gets talked about enough. I think everyone always talks about training stimulus. Everyone, it's it, we have a very like productive mindset on these, and I think people don't always view eating and sleeping as productive. But I call sleeping free doping, and like that, if you're able to have that reset and really let everything set in from a hormonal standpoint and <laughs> get some of those uh, androgenic effects, like why not do it? It only makes you better. Yeah. And I know life can be very busy. It can be very, I don't know, complicated. There's a lot of factors that go into things for why Americans specifically probably don't sleep very much. But I think it is important. And that's something that I myself am still trying to work on. But I think when you can get consistent sleep underneath you and you can actually recover from what you're doing, you can push so much farther. And you see that sometimes on people when it's like, oh, they had like this miraculous season and it's like, oh, wait, they had time to actually have some downtime or they had time to sleep. They had like, it's all the things that you don't always associate as being quote unquote productive, but they can go very far. That's an awesome point. All right. Next question. This is a shoe question. And Matt, I'm going to kind of pitch it to you. Um, although David, you can jump in too. But um, E-Run Ammo asks, Kayano 30 or Vongo V6 for a marathon? So personally, I would choose the Keanu 30. Uh, no offense to the Vongo 6, but that shoe is totally different than previous versions of it. If you only want a mild guidance shoe, the Vongo V6 might be a better option for you because if you can get over that, it's great. But the Keanu, or not, it's okay. Uh, the Keanu 30 is definitely the moderate to higher uh, guidance shoe that I have really enjoyed. I have well over 100 miles on my pair and have both a written... Uh, not both, but a written in like beginning review and hundred mile review on that shoe. So I think from a stability standpoint, Keanu 30 is definitely going to win. If you want a mild guidance, like borderline neutral shoe, 
the Vongo V6 might be a better option. The Vongo does have a little bit smoother of a ride. The Keanu's kind of got that classic, like, like big bulky kind of feel to it, but it does break into a little bit more rockered ride. The Vago wins a little bit on the rockered ride thing there, but stability again, if that's what you're focusing on, Keanu 30 for sure. So if it's a stability question, you go Keanu. What if it's like a speed question or like a comfort or springy question? Like, yeah, what, what would be some them, people who might lean either way? Yeah, to be honest with you, neither one of them are fast shoes. It's not something I would ever consider for speed. The Vongo does feel, I mean, okay, so. <laughs> You're running a marathon tomorrow. You have the Keanu 30 or the Vongo 6. Go. I would pick the, the Keanu 30. There you go. Because Why? I trust it more. For speed, for too. Speed. Yeah. Yeah. There's similar weights, but again, the the midsole feels a little bit snappier to me, even though it feels slightly more clunky in the Keanu 30. So I would go Keanu 30 personally. No, I agree completely. I feel like if you like something that's a little bit firmer, it has a little bit more toe spring up front. I think over yep. the course of 26 miles, for me personally, I'm going to choose the Keanu. I feel like that Vongo has a pretty soft platform. Not that it's unstable necessarily, but I feel like yeah. I feel like my muscles intrinsically are probably working a it, little bit harder and I don't necessarily want to push as much. Whereas the Keanu, I feel like if I really had to, I could a little bit. And if it's a choice between just those two, I'm going to go Keanu. Vongo was weirdly neutral. Yeah, like, yeah, it was. stability like, here? Yeah. Because V5, sure, y'all loved the version 5. Version right? 5 like, was awesome. It. Yeah, that was a great shoe. And, and what was the major change between those? They the changed everything. Six? They, they changed they cha- the that whole was an overhaul. shoe. They, they, they took plate, out. They changed they, the posting. They changed the yeah. upper. They changed well, the sidewalls. It's not even posted. They changed. Yeah. I mean, well, they had Everything posting was, in the five. The fit is. Yeah. Well, it's like. I mean, it was like a gradual yeah. thickening of the foam, but that's a post. All, essentially, yeah. like a wave. I had a dynamic five, post, I, I guess six, you could so. say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't test five, any of like, the stability stuff. So this is, yeah, I don't just, yeah. and then five, like the five six, was definitely but... white, like more comfortable fit. I feel like the six, like is narrower, not necessarily in a bad way. It's just more snug. And it was like, yeah. So Keanu for sure. What about Keanu 30 versus Vongo five? Oh, I think I'm still going to go Keanu. I would choose Vongo five. I think I just have a little bit more responsiveness out of that Keanu midsole, like that kind of firm rocker. I think you're I, right. I could see yeah, myself but the Vongo getting into V5 rhythm was a little like, bit easier I, there if I if I was trying to race it. The Vago Five is like an outslider, though. I am I'm now reconsidering. But this, I will but say, it was, if it's purely comfort, if I'm just running 26, I would choose the Vongo. Yeah, that Vongo yeah. Five, the Keanu over the Vongo Five, oh, Vongo Vongo five. five oh, over okay. the Keanu 30. Purely comfort, purely that's, comfort. That's I'm going to go Vongo. Yeah. But if I'm like. Yep. If it's like, oh, I only have these two shoes and I have a marathon tomorrow, I'm probably going to pick the Keanu. Just a tiny bit more snappier for Agreed. me. And I feel like I could probably fall into rhythm a little bit easier. But if I'm just like having a jolly old time and jogging around and taking freebies from every person I see that's cheering on, <laughs> then I will <laughs> totally. choose the Vongo. All right, let's move to our next question. Uh, this yep. is a question from Instagram from Tim. Are there any studies that show that max cushion shoes are beneficial? I'm ready to rattle these off. Let's do it. So I'm going to be very cautious with the word beneficial. So there's been a lot of mixed research so far. The one group that has found a, when you say beneficial, meaning a decrease in like injury risk, 
Uh, Laurent Maslow, who we've had the pleasure of having on this podcast before, published a study called uh, Shoe Cushioning Influences the Running Injurious According to Body Mass, a Randomized Control Trial. Um, that's from 2020. So be aware, though, the only group that had a decrease in injury risk was lighter runners. So lighter runners that were using maximal cushion shoot had it at a decrease in injury risk. The other groups did not. It was about the same. So for lighter runners, this may be a benefit in terms of like, hey, like injury risk and things like that. From a performance benefit, there is so much variability. There hasn't really been seen a, that a performance benefit hasn't really been seen in terms of economy. Uh, Christine Pollard and a couple others have looked on this and there's too many variable factors that extend beyond just how much cushioning it has in terms of the geometry, the midsole resiliency and stuff like that. Um I when do think that's where this question this question gets a little squirrely because max cushioned shoes, the you know, super shoes or maximally cushioned rockered with a plate shoes have been shown to have a benefit for running economy for right. you know, in certain populations and stuff with you know Dustin Jobert and But just greater cushioning, not necessarily. So the other thing, Laurent Maslow, again, there's another study called lower impact forces, but greater burden for the musculoskeletal system and shoes with greater cushioning showed that those that had softer foams, yes, lowered some of the impact forces, but your body had to compensate more to create stability and to adjust for the excessive softness. It's like running on pavement versus running on sand right sand if each one's going to have its own difficulty but running on sand like your muscles get really tired just because you're having to also stabilize at the same time uh, so that's another study that shows again it's going to depend on the situation the final one um is from uh, why am i blanking on their name it's kumala because I've cited this multiple times from 2018, it said running in highly cushioned shoes increases leg stiffness and amplifies impact loading. Found that some people with higher cushioning actually land harder. So you might have, if you look at the ground reaction forces, like at just where you're hitting the ground, things might look lower. But when you measure it at the actual joints, there's actually increased joint loading because you land harder because your body goes, oh, that's a softer thing. I can land harder. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about as much as shock absorption. So the answer is not what you're going to like, but it's it really depends on the person. It seems to be a very, very individual thing. But across the board, I can't say this is necessarily beneficial for everyone. It's going to be individual, again, unless you've got the right rocker, geometry, things like – and other factors in there, as well as things like do you have the optimal – I'm going to throw this out here as a theory, muscle tuning, right? Does, your, does the loading of the foam match how your muscles – contract and some other factors so maximal shoes are not like a, a end-all be-all people like them they feel really soft and cushioned that doesn't necessarily mean it's better for your musculoskeletal system it just means forces are going to be changed and they're going to move places it's like foot strike one's not necessarily better than the other it just shifts the loading forces different places do you think that the pace that someone is running impacts that Ooh, that's a good question. I'm going to throw that to you. What do you think? Since you run a lot faster than the two of us. And because if I keep talking, I'm going to sneeze and cough. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, the answer is obviously yes, right? right? I you're think, having higher anyway. peak loads, you're landing harder, you're running faster, right. you're, you're just interacting yeah. with the ground a whole lot more with more force, yes. So yeah, if you add speed as additional variable, I don't, you know, that that might provide 
more benefit. If if the shoe maintains the same weight, if it gets heavier, that as you add more cushioning, that might not necessarily be a good thing because it's a trade off there. Because we know weight has an impact on efficiency and benefit. Um, but again, if you can get that sole softness up that maintains that lightweight, that's where that question really begins to go. Well, I don't know. I think the other part to to consider too are just long-term changes that we don't fully know yet, but there are studies on minimalist footwear and use of minimalist shoes that you do see changes in um, muscle hypertrophy of the intrinsic muscles and a little bit of bone density stuff. And we don't know if the reverse happens where if you go in maximally cushioned shoes, what happens to your intrinsic musculature, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's a consideration where if you're always training in maximally cushioned shoes, your transition to a minimalist footwear for running might take you longer. Or at least if I were doing that myself, I would take longer if I had, a, well, because of what we test, I'm running in a lot of maximalist stuff because that's the world we live in. So if I was going to try to transition and use minimalist footwear, I would take even longer just to make sure that my body can adapt to how different it would be from what I'm currently doing. You know what I would bet? I would bet that if you go, like as we've seen with the, the minimal route, you see a lot of inc- hypertrophy or increased muscle size of the intrinsic foot muscles in some like lower, like lower, lower shank area. But I would bet if you did a longitudinal study, and maybe I'm wrong, I would love to hear some comments from people tell me I'm completely wrong on this, or you too, uh, that if you run in more maximal shoes, based on what we know, uh, I think it's Savani that demonstrated that you have a, a shift in workload and forces up to the knee and the hip. I would bet your intrinsic hip muscles, hypertrophy, and change as you train more in maximal shoes, but I might be wrong just because of the inherent like softer and instability, maybe, but I might be wrong. If you're not working on them actively, they're pretty small to begin with. So, I mean, if they're getting worked a little bit more, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Harder to get out though, though, in terms of like ultrasound stuff, because the deep hip muscles are so like difficult, like because a lot of the studies use diagnostic ultrasound. Totally. It is much easier to look at the foot. Hip would be really hard. Yeah, I mean, you can get a great glute max, but like to really get in there and look at the deep rotators, like that would be, that'd be tricky. It's really hard to do that. All right, let's move to our next question. That was a great question. Thanks, Tim. Um, So this is Miguel from Instagram. And their question is, what are suitable race shoes for overpronation? So that's kind of a loaded question, but Matt, you recently did a video on this, I believe, on the YouTube channel. But I think, can you talk about that, you know, suitable shoes for overpronation? I feel like we should talk about that concept first, and then you can talk about footwear. Yeah. So be aware, if you are having trouble with overpronation, that's where the, what my answer is going to benefit you. If you're someone that overpronates, quote unquote, by the way, we've never defined overpronation. Like yes, exactly. it, pronation is a natural movement. Like you, if you watch me run, you will see me pronate heavily. And probably like one of my faculty in my undergrad was like, I don't even know how you move forward. And then like a week later, <laughs> I won the conference championship in the 10 K. So, you know, um, but if you are having issues with pronation, if it is stressing tissues like your Achilles or posterior tibialis, or giving you issues with things that we know are associated with it, that is where this is going to benefit you. So I'm going to stay away from super shoes for the moment, but a couple of the shoes I've really enjoyed for faster efforts. Um, I haven't used them for racing because typically I stick with super shoe stuff because I can handle it. But for faster efforts, the Brook Hyperion GTS has been a really great shoe for me. It's one of the few mild stability light racing shoes left on the market. It's got guide, guide rails in it. It is snappy. It's quick. It's not a super shoe, but it's definitely light enough to be used for a lot of racing knees, especially like 5K, 10K, maybe longer if you can handle it. So that's a really great race type shoe. 
Um, another really great shoe, if you want something for a little longer distance, is going to be the Saucony Tempest, which I have just loved and have many miles on on multiple versions. It's not plated, but again, it's got a combination of a super foam and some EVA in it. And you do some really good guidance concepts. So if you pronate or supinate, it actually tends to work really well. I was really surprised that a lot of our testers, Nathan and Andrea, also did really well in it. But again, for that kind of stuff, for longer distance, if you want a super foam for racing, that is going to do really, really well. The next couple things, if you're like, okay, I specifically want a super shoe for this, that doesn't quite exist. There are some super shoes in my mind that tend to be a little bit better. So like one that works for me is the Endorphin Elite because of the wider platform and the sidewalls tend to work really, really well for somebody like me that pronates a lot. And the other one is going to be the Adidas Adios Pro because the torsion, the, the rods are so stiff and the way the lateral bevel is set up that it kind of throws me lateral and keeps me lateral as I transition through the heel. So hopefully that answers that How question. How do you feel you have any about the Ultra Vanish Carbon? That was exactly my question. I also asked that question to both of you. I, I think it's a great shoe. It doesn't provide, to me personally, it's more on the neutral side of things and kind of like unnaturally stable, but not one that I would consider some for somebody who pronates quite a bit. Um, yeah, just personally. I mean, I think it does a pretty good job. It's but it, it's lower it's, stack, yeah. right? It's like what thirty three. The foam's a little firmer. They got some sole flaring in there, like, and it's a pretty wide. Yeah, base. but no like, side. I feel like it. I feel like it does a pretty good job. Would I choose to race in it's it? It's done better for me as shoes? I ripped off the lateral sole. <laughs> like, would I would I choose that shoe to race in over a lot of the other shoes on the market? No, I wouldn't. That's just me being honest. But I mean, if it's a a simply a question of whether or not do I feel like relatively stable in it? Cause I tend to pronate quite a bit too when I'm fatigued. Like I feel like it does a pretty good job for me. I would, but some of the requirements that I'd normally have to make me feel more confident for like, for like rate longer, maybe I'm doing this for longer racing, but to be like a, Hey, this stuff has some guidance as I would want some sidewalls. I think I'd want things to be a little bit more stable in the midfoot because the challenge is like they, they don't have that, that outsole foam in the midfoot. So when you transition through it, heel feels good, forefoot feels good, but it feels just a little unstable, like not unstable, but just very neutral for me in the midfoot. So that's why I'm kind of hesitating. And to be fair, um, like to none of these shoes are necessarily like what I would pin as a stability right. shoe. Like they're all neutral. Right. Except for the Tempest and well, the, yeah, the uh, Tempest, yes. uh, Hyperion GTS. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But totally agree on that. <laughs> But yeah, Tempest, Hyperion, GTS, if you're not looking for a super, super shoe, super, super, uh, a super shoe. How do you shoe, feel about... Yeah, super duper shoe. <laughs> Never mind. Continue. No, no, keep... Well, yeah, keep going. No, no, no. You have to bring it up now. I was thinking more supinating, but uh, the Super Blast, A6 Super Blast. Oh, that's a great question. I... You know, I think the super vest could work because the sidewalls and what... You know, how could I forget yeah, I mean, that shoe? That's incre- I think boxes. I forget about it for racing. I would definitely consider that shoe. If you're not like worried about like the stack height limits or whatever, which the most of us that doesn't apply to us, I think that could be a really, really great option given it's got a more super foam, which I'm still not exactly sure what that is. It's got the sidewalls. It's got the lat, like the, the frontal plane stiffness in it. Yeah. I think that that could be an option along with those other ones. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Sweet. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch us two more, maybe three more questions, but this first one's a little bit longer. So, um, Francisco emailed and they said, I'm a 46 year old male runner that has run long distance since the age of 15 during the last three years, I've had problems with Achilles tendinosis. 
then in parentheses said had lots of physical therapy and have been trying to prepare for marathons. I recently completed uh, half an Ironman. I'm able to run again. I've been having trouble getting into racing shape due to the injury and recovery time. I'm not able to run after hard workouts the way I once did. I'm not sure if it's nutrition or age. However, my old ways of running are not working for me. I'm wondering if you know of any good books, coaches, or if you'd recommend a physical therapist to help put together an exercise plan and modifications so I can start racing again. It's not like this is my dissertation or it is, this is literally Francisco, this is my dissertation. So, um, we, I just recorded an episode last week on this exact topic about what I am learning in this. So if you've had Achilles tendinosis, you need to be aware of the fact, I'm going to try to give you the cliff notes version. So Nathan, Dave, if I go too long, just tell me. Yeah, go so, short. Cause th- that yeah. episode will be out by the time they yeah. hear this. So go so, back to that yeah. one. Go back and listen to that. The cliff notes version is that your Achilles tendon, in terms of propulsion, your calf and Achilles tendon are two of the most important areas for getting you forward. As you, if you've had Achilles tendinosis and there's an increased as you age, you are losing a lot of the elastic properties that help propel you forward and store energy and elastically release it. Now, um, Achilles tend like irritated tendons don't like really fast things if they're not ready. So it's not surprising that harder and faster workouts piss this off. Like your checking box is going, yeah, this is definitely an ongoing tendinosis. And it gets harder because your calf muscles actually when you run, they really are supposed to contract fairly isometrically and a lot of the length change happens from your tendon. So if the tendon is losing its function, i.e. it's not functioning at the same level because of ongoing tendinosis, yeah, it makes sense. You're losing some of the speed. Things are harder to do. So you need to have to work with somebody that really understands tendon pathology and basic calf raises and like your classic like like ice and scent, what, you know, all this like fairly stereotypical stuff doesn't make the same long-term benefit. What we know about tendons is you need to load that thing heavy and slow for a minimum of nine to 12 months. It takes that long for the tissue to actually change. And you need to have an appropriate progression back to function and be able to go, Hey, if I really want this to go like pain, by the way, is not a good indicator of this because you will, your pain will disappear long before this thing is truly changed. You need to work with somebody that really understands tendons, going to be able to progress you through heavy eccentrics or heavy slow resistance training appropriately. And it's not, it's not a three sets of 10. This is like you're loading this thing really hard for like three to five reps, three to five sets a couple times a week appropriately to get the tendon to increase in its stiffness. And then you have to have somebody that appropriately gets you to, to learn how to get that tendon to become elastic and with appropriate plyometrics. So who that is specifically in your area, I don't know, but I'm going to say go listen to the episode I just did. That may help guide you a little bit more. Cliff note on tendinopathy in general, like tendons take time to change, to physically change the structure of that. Yeah. Like like you said, yeah. you have to have a pretty rigorous- And it's function. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, You got to train these things because they they do a lot of absorbing- they do a lot of lengthening, but they do a lot of exploding too. And so that's like, they have a lot of jobs, a lot of roles. And in order for them to do that effectively and to truly have a change at that like microscopic level, yep. it takes time. So I think having some patience with that process as well is huge. And eight to 12 weeks, like the kind of the classic physical therapy run isn't enough. Even up to six months, there's been some evidence that just that's not enough. You have to keep going and continue to load that thing to get it to really change. And there's also some interesting evidence that suggests that you may not actually change the actual structure of the tendon, but the function 
is what takes sometimes that long to change in your function and your pain and all that kind of stuff can certainly improve. I think, uh, wow, almost lost my voice for a second. I do think. Am I getting you sick the, just by talking to you? Yeah, through through the through the computer. <laughs> uh, no, but I think in terms of your question of books, coaches, PTs, etc., I think if you have a local PT, that's always my go-to. If you have a local PT who works with runners, that's that's awesome. If you don't, I think your next best step is to find a coach who is a PT because they'll be able to work with you longitudinally over, like if you're willing to enable to invest in that, um, they could work with you over the course of years to help you get to the point where not only can they help progress kind of the loading program, but they can also help you understand your response to harder workouts and then help you tailor your program to the function of that, that region and stuff. I think that's where finding a coach with a PT background that's the, the you're in the sweet spot for that in my opinion and i guess shameless plug for andrea uh, myers so she's on our team she does some coaching i don't know if she's accepting people uh accepting new athletes but i know she does coaching i know that uh i and i have a team of coaches who are pts so <clears throat> our team has some people but i think there's there's many other ones um there's uh we're gonna have i think we're gonna have a guest on soon um trains smart run strong i think is her instagram handle victoria but she she does a lot of coaching and strength training but i think that's the perfect matchup is you know pt and coach can give you the modifications to your training program and help you through the progression of the loading program i would also say you know going back to david's comment on nutrition um tendon health and nutrition are 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 pretty tied as well. So hydration um, too. If you're looking <clears throat> in hydration, if you're looking for a coach, another one would be a, a sports dietitian who also coaches. So that'd be my other my other two cents on that. Shout out to a previous guest, Brody Sharp. Also, is not a bad person to look at since he does both physiotherapy and coaching for those that are international. All right. So um, one more question for us before we sign off. Uh, this is from Matt McKenzie on Instagram, and they asked. Can there be too many shoes in your rotation? There can never be can too many shoes. What kind of this? a question is that? Why would there ever <laughs> be too many shoes? No. Uh, in all seriousness, There's I one mean, there probably could be. Like, yeah, <laughs> if you're having too much variance in load and you're not able to actually get any consistency under you and you're just constantly being loaded in different ways, can't get into a rhythm, like sometimes that can actually increase some of that risk. Like with that said, variability can help with decreasing risk. So there's a middle ground. So you just, just find something like, I don't recommend running in a different shoe every single day that I don't recommend. Like for a month straight. Yeah, exactly. Like if that was like literally your long-term like way of doing this, I would probably say like, ah, I don't even do that. Like don't do that. But I mean, if you have yeah. like, I don't know, like, let's say you have an easy day shoe, you have a long run shoe, you have a workout shoe, you have a track shoe, you've got like, you could have a pretty solid amount of shoes and kind of rotate things around and have it be fine. But I don't think running in a different shoe every single day, all of the time or every other day, you know? I think it's also possible to, if you're, if you're rotating through tons of shoes, it's possible to run in, it's you're increasing your likelihood of running into a shoe that gives you a problem. Right. So I am of the persuasion that 
shoes don't fix injuries, but they can cause them. And so I think that if you're rotating a ton, you're increasing your likelihood of running into one that doesn't match you. And honestly, so I, you know, I, I've run into a number of random, you know, injuries over the last years since DOR stuff. And I, I think it's par- partially that is it. Yeah, you've had me. a couple individual I, shoes that just really <clears throat> messed you up. Yes, I've had a couple shoes that have really messed me up. and I've had a couple so, too where it's like you put it on, you run one run, and you're like, I'm not running in that again. And yes. then I had another shoe yeah. where I wanted, I was so excited about that shoe that I was like, I'm going to give it another go. And then I was like, I can't physically run in that again. Audio sports. Yeah, that three? was that one. Yeah. I got two, <laughs> two runs in that shoe and I was like, this, I can't. I'm literally limping yep. right now. Like, yep. Yep. right. And this isn't just to scare anybody, by the way, of having a decent shoe rotation if you can afford no. it, because the only evidence we have out there on decreasing injury risks has been strength training and having a shoe rotation. So and nobody's done that on the other side, though. So what the you know, extreme I don't, shoe rotation? Nobody's, yeah. yeah, studied that. But I would, I think you're totally right to going. If you have too many pairs of shoes, you run the risk of running into one that might injure you. And that is certainly a risk that we all carry for those of us who'd like, we are very fortunate to get to test a lot of different shoes, but that also means it increases the risk of us getting one that really doesn't work for us. And then having to try to run through it, you know, just to get the review out at our own peril. So that does happen. I mean, or you could just run in an alpha fly for every single run and just call it a day. That's it. I would not do that. Can we, we have, can we do one more question? Oh man! What 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 question is, do you want to do? The, the very the very very last no the very very last one. Oh, regarding the yeah, Shorkenteric. Yeah. Yes, yes, we can. Just for you, Matt. So this yeah. is an email from Nico Rivera. Um, they said, "Big fan of your podcast. From your experiences working with injured runners who are either new or experienced with super shoes, how frequent is the occurrence of trochanteric bursitis? And if so, have you discovered that this is uh, due to super shoe use or other factors like strength training, subpar warm up, subpar warm up and cool down routine, lack of sleep, and or rest, to just to name a few?" That's the question. There's other really nice things that they say uh, after that, like. But- yeah, to all the dads of DOR, hang in there, which I appreciate. As <laughs> I now have a child, and they bring diseases into the house all the time, I'm just going to be sick for the next I don't know how many years. I'm just kidding. I love my kid. <laughs> Eighteen. Yeah, thanks. So, what you, do you two you think? Could, well, me? Oh, you, I have to you, answer this. You're the one. So you said all right, I have fine. Questions. All right, fine. <laughs> we were ready to call it a day, man. All right, fine. <laughs> we want to go to we're bed. Almost, you're just we're wanted to. All right, I'll end this talk about trochanteric bursitis. <laughs> All right, we're still at 54 minutes. I'll, I'll get this. Um, so to answer your question on this, <laughs> running injuries are always multifactorial. So not doing enough strength training, not warming up well enough. Sleep is a huge factor, obviously, for injury risk. And we've talked about this extensively, nutri- non-optimal nutrition. Like, go listen to my talk with Rich Willie on like running in ener- like an, a relative energy deficiency and how bad that is for you. Uh, just not only for your skeletal system, but also your musculoskeletal system. I will say that it's not that I see trochanteric bursitis specifically because that's just one pathology and I really see a lot a lot of increased injuries for those who are really overusing super shoes that a lot of stuff going on at the hip, right? Because a lot of super shoes with some exceptions tend to shift the workload up to the knee and the hip. 
they tend to extend your stride. They tend to be a little less stable. So the deep hip muscles have to work a lot harder. You tend to increase your stride length, which kind of works your hip flexors and, and stretches them a lot more. Some of your, your, it tends to extend kind of your back a little more if you don't have enough hip extension. So you can also see some lumbar issues with that because you'll be compensating. But Again, that's all on top of if you are strong enough if and you've prepared yourself to run in super shoes and you're using them appropriately because uh, they are tools and they're not meant to be used all the time. If you are getting enough sleep, if you've got adequate nutrition, a lot of that together is going to help keep you healthy. But that said, these shoes typically do increase stress in that area. So it just means if you're going to use them, you need to be smarter about them. Make sure you're maintaining your sleep. Make sure you don't overtrain. Make sure you've got good nutrition. Make sure you, you're strengthening the whole lower extremity, but especially look at some of the talks I've done on strength and preparing yourself for super shoes. That's a, There's a great episode that I did on that um, and that we've talked about. I think there's a reason you might see that. I can't specifically say trochanteric bursitis, but I can definitely say that there's been an increase in hip and, and like lumbopelvic uh, pathology, but nobody's actually done any like studies on that yet. That's just been kind of testimonial. Um, curious if you two have any thoughts on that, even though I know I brought this question upon myself. Yeah, I haven't seen anecdotally, I haven't seen, um, more trochanteric, uh, pain syndrome things. I also, I just, whenever I see trochanteric bursitis, I just, I always have to say that that is one of the most overly diagnosed totally. conditions that exists. Yep. Um, yep. over 85%, there's a study on this, but over 85% of lateral hip pain is actually due to gluteal tendinopathy yep. and not the bursa itself, which means that your treatment approach is very, very different. If it's, and it's not completely a wrong. issue. Yeah. If you're doing yeah, bursa. So it's just, yeah. So if you're trying to treat bursa, it's not going to help you. It's got to be something different. So, um, which is which I think is a positive thing because when it's you know some kind of tendinopathy, tendons want to be loaded, so it's yep. a very fun treatment approach and rehabilitation. So Bursas I have to always don't. say that. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you know in the question you kind of answer you kind of answered a little bit where there are just so many factors, and I think there's a really good framework for running injuries in the Bertelson. Um, article from 2017. I'm just going to read one quote from it. It says, injury occurs as a result of the runner possessing multiple risk factors and then participating in running under certain circumstances to a degree where the structure's load capacity was exceeded. So it takes a lot of factors in the right moment where it just exceeds kind of the, yeah. the tissue capacity. In the case of this, that like Matt mentioned, it could be due to shifting of loads. Maybe you decrease some of the, maybe you fatigue out some of those, you know, other stabilizing hip muscles and then some of the other glute. I mean, and that could, a lot of those stabilizing hip muscles attach into the, the um, greater trochanter of the hip, which is that bone on the outside where that bursa sits. So that's where I, I totally... Um, I think it matters that it might not be trochanteric bursitis and more likely isn't. Um, right. And it might be due to the stabilizing demands that are put on our hip when we run in super shoes. And so there's, there's my two cents, but that's it. But thank you all for joining us on this mailbag episode and submitting your questions. We'll be reaching out again in another month to be asking for some more. And we're coming closer to the end of the year. So we'll probably be putting out some content about some of our favorite footwear for this past year. Um, and so if you have specific questions or shoes that you want us to talk about, please let us know that as well. Uh, we hope to talk to y'all next time. Thanks for joining us.